Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. We've talked to some pretty interesting people on this show before, but I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm a fan of today's uh, guest, not just for his work. You may have seen him in West Wing or Scandal. And if you go out and check out uh, Leopoldstadt, an amazing play that's uh, on Broadway right now, you will catch him there playing the part of Herman Mertz. But um, um, the biggest reason I'm a fan of Josh Molina is that he is one of the few celebrities that speaks out about anti-Semitism regularly. So Josh, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I guess I just want to get into that right now as sort of the first piece. Um, you know, it takes a certain amount of, I don't know why, I don't actually know why it takes a certain amount of like moral courage to speak up for the Jewish people. I mean, I think maybe I know why, because somehow it's considered not cool or something. But I guess if you could start us off with like a little bit about your Jewish background, you know, kind of where do you come from Jewishly? Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Um, was speaking out about anti-Semitism something that was kind of part of how you were raised? Yeah, sure. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, in the suburbs, 45 minutes north of Manhattan. Um, and from first through eighth grade, I went to an Orthodox yeshiva. Westchester Day School in Mamaroneck, New York. Um, I came from a family whose own level of observance probably more in line with conservative Judaism, but there was no conservative yeshiva, so I went to Westchester Day. It was a beautiful place to go to school. Um, I came from a home where my parents valued um, Jewish tradition and observance, and then I went to a school where they cared about those things as well and taught me to be proud of who I am and deeply ingrained my Jewish identity in me. And so uh, I guess, uh, you know, speaking out about anti-Semitism doesn't feel like a courageous act, especially because I am Jewish. I feel like I'm just trying to protect myself and and uh, others. So it's uh, maybe an act of uh, self-preservation more than anything else. And I hope that I try to speak out against other uh, types of senseless hatred too, because uh, those are rampant as well, sadly. For sure. No. And I guess that's the point. And, you know, um, I mean, someone that we're going to be interviewing soon is David Bodiel. It seems like a oh, lot of people will speak out. Love for that guy. Yeah, he's awesome. It seems like, you know, it's a good thing to speak out against hate in general. And we see a lot of people with platforms doing that. And somehow there is for Jews more of a hesitancy to do that, to sort of consider it um, a hate, you know, that's kind of as worthwhile to speak out against. Um, and like, do you think that that exists in society in general? Is that more prevalent in Hollywood? I think it does. I mean, and David is far more artic articulate than I on the subject. But uh, uh, as a group, I think um, that we are a minority that is often not viewed as a minority. Um, where obviously there are many Jews of color, but it's uh, many Jews are white and thought of as white when that's how the world would like to look at us. Uh, and we're, you know, one third of 1% of the world's population. We're a minority and deserve uh, allies and uh, protection and help from others as well. But we're not always viewed that way by, by the majority. 100%. So I don't know if you know, in the last year, um, actually our one year anniversary is tomorrow, we launched the first and only Jewish Hollywood Bureau, really to ask for the same type of treatment that every other marginalized group is asking for. And as you note, you know, many Jews are white passing. Um, although I will like push back a little bit, 
you know, my family was exiled to a place where they eat gefilte fish. And so I kind of got that categorization of being European. But my whole life, people treated me, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews treat me like I'm one of them. Um, I've been, you know, mistaken for Latina or, you know, Middle Eastern. Somehow I give off like more of the ethnic look. And so mm. it was a very confusing experience my whole life to both be told that I'm white or European, but then also not get treated that way. Um, and I think sort of even that white classification um, leads us to these crazy proclamations like what the Goldberg saying the Holocaust was white on white violence or and Frank had white privilege. I think, you know, we really have to push back at that because now maybe segueing into um, the play that you're doing right now. Jews thought they made it um, in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s, Vienna, Germany. Um, as Leopold Stott, um, you know, shows. And my husband and I actually saw this um, at the end of December. Um, it is, I, I wish that we saw you. In fact, the truth is that we want to take our whole family. So God willing, we will. We will still. I will to- say, though, you saw David Krumholtz, who is uh, the original in, uh, on Broadway and so superb in the role. Uh, it was really moving, scary, poignant. Um, what attracted you to this play? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I would have done the play had it been offered to me without my having read it, because I'm a huge fan of Tom Stoppard's. Um, I'm thrilled to work with uh, Patrick Marber, the director. How much more so was it something I would be interested in doing when I read the play and realized uh, how deeply and substantively Jewish the play is? And uh, the character I play, Hermann Meritz, is a well-to-do Austrian Jew in 1899 as the play uh, opens. And he has, in fact, converted to Catholicism, not necessarily because he has a, a, a you know, hatred for his own identity, but he has sublimated, and, uh, sublimated it and found that one way to rise in uh, Vienna's cultural circles uh, is to become a Catholic. And uh, the play covers 50 plus years of life in this large intermarried, which is to say interfaith um, Viennese family, an Austrian family, and we see their faith in 1899, 24, 1924, 1938, 1955. Um, And it's just a brilliant, big uh, play with incredible scope that I think, and it's easy to um, maybe at the top of the play, knowing a little history, most of the audience will know that Hermann, who believes that things like pogroms and yellow patches and uh, ghettos are a thing of the past. It's easy to view him as complacent or naive. But uh, I think by the end of the play, it's appropriate maybe to question our own complacency and how secure we feel in our own lives. Um, and it, you, it's history can only be judged, you know, looking backwards. Um, so I think it, it, it's a very good time for this play to be produced. Totally agree. Um, it's almost like watching a horror film where you know what's going to happen next and you're like, get out, just get out. And then they don't. And then, I mean, one of the things that I was left with leaving this play is like, what will the future, our future forebears think back at us? Are we, do you think we're missing the signs right now? Well, I think it's important that we, that we don't, that we uh, don't miss the signs because they're there. And uh, I mean, I feel a little bit that I grew up in a naive way, a little bit myself, because although never again was always a big part of of what was inculcated into me, I grew up feeling pretty secure and having it pretty good as an American Jew and not feeling like, even though I said it and I believed it never again, it it didn't feel like uh, 
a moment of the present or, you know, these things can't happen again. And, you know, in my, in my later <laughs> age, I've learned that, oh, this, there's, uh, you know, this kind of stuff has been bubbling uh, maybe under the surface and, or I've been fortunate enough not to deal with things that others have had to. Um, but I think the last four, five, six, seven years in the United States have uh, a lot of stuff that has been simmering beneath has come above and people are feel very comfortable um, expressing the hatred and prejudices, uh, the hatred and prejudice that they feel. And so I think uh, we would be foolish indeed not to pay close attention to the rise in hate crimes and anti-Semitic acts and uh, you know, racist acts and homophobic. I mean, there's there's plenty uh, to be aware of and to be on guard for. For sure. So it was interesting because I was raised probably similar to you, maybe not quite as observant. Um, I was raised as a proud conservative Jew, um, and as my mother was, you know, feeding us bacon cheeseburgers because we were more conservative in like kind of synagogue affiliation than like traditional observance. She was at the same time telling us. Things were good in Germany and things were good in Spain and every country eventually tires of its Jews um, and one day the U.S. may as well. So while I was raised, you know, in an upper middle class, very stable and happy, proud Jewish home, in the back of my mind, I had this idea that there's no such thing as a Jew fully being able to kind of like rest um, in exile. And I came up with an idea recently, uh, which is that Jewish baggage is never being able to fully unpack. Um, and I think, I don't know, were, was that any part of that, like expressed to you? Like, you know, what I also realized is that because a non-Jewish black man, after the, uh, Jersey city shooting and Muncie stabbing, we did this event in Harlem where we opened up a pop-up and we gave out coffee and rugelach to try to like, just start conversations between the Jewish Beautiful. and black, especially the Orthodox community in that a lot of times you see people very visibly looking Jewish on the outside and there's been very little um, bridge building or even basic conversations. So we had so many wonderful interactions when we did this pop up a couple of times. COVID came and just kind of like ended it all. Nobody wanted to meet anyone or take anyone's coffee. But um, a non-Jewish black man said to me at the time, no offense, you know, it seems like you Jews are doing okay right now. Like, what's your persecution? And what I realized was that not only had my mother sat me down sort of in this informal talk of letting us know we may have to run one day. First of all, it seemed like a lot of other friends of mine got a similar talk, but it's actually codified in the Passover Seder in the Haggadah. In every generation, our enemies will rise up to destroy us. Um, and what it occurred to me is that this is almost like this talk that the elders give over to the young of our nation. Um, no matter where we're sitting to eat our matzah, even if it's an affluence, you know, um, in a comfortable place, there's this idea in every generation we may have to run. I don't know, did any ideas like that ever kind of come across your way in day school? Oh, yeah. All of that percolates with me. And of course, when we talk about the Passover Seder, uh, we're not only supposed to stay aware of the fact that people, those, there are those who will rise against us, but also to see ourselves as if we were, um, um, we left Egypt ourselves. So there's, they, I've always felt the sweep and the import in Judaism of being both grateful for where we are and what we have, and always a little bit looking over your shoulder um, for what might be coming next. And that, I think that's a little bit, for better or worse, part of what it means to be Jewish. Totally. And I think sort of expressing that the more that we can express these type of sentiments of, you know, 
um, maybe being exiled to Europe, but you know, not all of us being white passing if we, you know, just because we were exiled to a place or this sense of unrest that we live with. I think that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what we're doing in the Hollywood Bureau, frankly, to just even start these conversations. We were at the Television Academy DEI Summit a few months ago, and for two hours, every group was mentioned. Um, and it was important issues that came up. And they said, you know, did we miss anything? Be brave. And I was like, I'm going to be brave now. And I grabbed the mic and I said, you forgot the Jews. We are sitting here now with the highest rates of anti-Semitic attacks in, you know, 40 plus years since we've been measuring this. And we are feeling increasingly terrified. And I feel like, you know, this play that you're um, in right now is one of the most, I would say, expressive or it sort of gives over more than anything I've ever seen before in modern day entertainment, um, that sense of we're not really white, we're not really privileged, where there's something about the Jew that always keeps us separate. Is that, is, do you have a similar feeling about that or? Yeah, absolutely. We are the other. And that's something that uh, my character, Herman, learns over the course of the play. Although he's a well-to-do textile factory owner uh, who has uh, been baptized and is now Catholic and is uh, uh, pretty well accepted in the cultural world of Vienna and has a fancy apartment just off the Ringstrasse. Uh, there are moments in the play where it's made clear Whatever you identify as and whoever you think you are, I see Jew when I see you. And uh, it, 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 it hits home to me every time I play those scenes. I'm wondering, do you get to hear feedback from the audience? Like, is that something I know when we put out a video, we get comments underneath it. Like, how does that work in the Broadway world? Does the show like get letters or any feedback from people that have seen it and it's changed their perspective or their relationship to Jewishness? Yeah, that's a great question. First and foremost, the beauty of doing live theater is I would say that we get feedback every second of the two hour and 10 minutes of the play because you can just feel the play and the brilliant writing. And I, I'm, I'm buoyed by a spectacular cast. And you can feel the audience connecting to the play and to moments and to scenes and how uh, uh, just how deep the connection is. And then people come by, people come by the stage door and share their thoughts. Um, people write me emails, I can look on social media. So there's a lot of back and forth and it's the kind of play that uh, people want to share their thoughts about. And while it is a deeply Jewish play, I wanna make sure people know that it is a universal play and uh, it's not a Holocaust play. That would be, I think, a reductive way to look at the play. Um, and in fact, the scenes go from 1938 to 1955. So the, 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 the Holocaust looms large in the piece, but isn't actually covered the time period. Um, it's really ultimately a play about a family and relationships and friendship and joy. And there's a lot of, there are laughs in the play and it is uh, uh, a heavy story in one sense, but um, I think also a joyous experience and, and uh, some of the pain of the absence of some of the family at the end of the play is earned by seeing them in happier times earlier in the piece. So for me, um, you know, without it being a Holocaust play, I would think I think that one of the main sort of heroes of the play is actually Israel, because as you note, it is a very heavy piece, and um, even parts of it could, you could say depressing. Sort of like where do we go? Like who wants us? Yeah. And for me, the kind of the one hope of the storyline is that um, there is a land without a people for a people without a land. I found that line to just speak to my soul um, and. My oldest made Aliyah last year. My second is uh, on her way to a, a gap year next year. And well, it's not going to be a gap year. It's really, I guess, the transition to number two Aliyah. We are we are facing eastward. 
Um, how do you think Israel uh, plays into uh, this play as a theme? Well, I think there's a brilliantly written uh, back and forth between my character and the character played by uh, Brandon Uranowitz, who's amazing, um, my brother-in-law Ludwig. And uh, Ludwig has given me, before the play began, a copy of Theodor Herzl's tract, uh, Der Judenstadt. And I'm reading it at the beginning of the play. And comfortable as I am in 1899 uh, Vienna, I find the argument for a Jewish state laughable. You know, Europe has gone past things like expulsions and massacres and burnings and blood libels and pogroms and ghettos. And things are so good here, I keep saying to uh, Ludwig. And then Ludwig had some very beautifully articulated uh, arguments for why the Jewish people might want a place in the world uh, that they can call their own. And they, it's the, the uh, argument and conversation is both heady and I think emotionally powerful. Is there anything, I mean, for me, this is probably one of the most Zionistic like pieces of modern day um, content that I've seen produced. Would you say something similar? Is there anything like in your mind that you think? That's interesting. Uh, to me, it's a reflection of uh, that different people are seeing different parts that appeal to them. I mean, the scope of the play is tremendous. Before mm -hmm. I had my first meeting to Zoom with the director, Patrick Marber, I think I read the play five times because after reading it once, I thought I'm not prepared yet to discuss the, the, the sheer number of concepts and the, the sweep of history and the amount of time that it covers. So yeah, there's certainly an element to that. Um, and uh, uh, I think a lot of people are taking that from it. And I, I guess what, I guess that's true. I guess any piece of, you know, art, people take their own thing. I'll tell you something else that spoke to me. You know, our founding mission of this nonprofit is to change negative perceptions of Orthodox Jews. The Hollywood Bureau expanded to the entire Jewish community because we realized that tropes are so pervasive. We have to have a bigger conversation. But I also noticed a little bit of this, like, um, them kind of like digging the shtetl Jew, that they were kind of like the, you know, um, more sophisticated, more educated uh, assimilated Jew, and there was sort of an embarrassment towards kind of the more old-fashioned or kind of that type of Jew should maybe, doesn't need to exist anymore. It's not really helpful. Is that is that anything that you, you know, kind of felt from the- Yeah, story? my character gets uh, busted pretty badly by his sister-in-law in the first scene because they're discussing where they might spend next Passover. My character, Herman's not too interested in doing Passover. He just wants to go back to the Italian lakes again next year. But uh, there's a discussion of whether they should have it in Vienna or perhaps in Galicia, where some of the uh, uh, other side of the family lives. And she tells me, you're a snob. There's too much of the shtetl about um, some of our family for you. And so that is a big part. There's also, you know, beyond just anti-Semitism, even among uh, Jews, there's polarization sometimes and judging of each other and what it means to be a Jew. So this, the, the play traffics in all this great um, uh, complex stuff mm -hmm. about identity and faith. I mean, so much so like just conversations that I've never seen done before in any modern uh, production, which was, again, for that point of like representation, you wanna see your story being told. Um, it was so interesting to, have this dynamic um, voiced expressed on a Broadway play. Also, the the Seder um, getting to you know watch those moments of joy. There's very few places where you get to see that much Jewishness, um, you know, in such a, a public and um, you know elevated place. Um, there's one I'm, great moment if, if I can add. Just there is a great moment I think, or a, a particular moment that I love 
where my character's just had some very bad news. He's coming back. He's joining the Seder. We've learned that this is not a guy who has a deep uh, Jewish identity, or maybe he has it, but it's sublimated. He's not too interested in uh, religious observance. And uh, the, um, one of the his nephew-in-law uh, starts to sing the four questions, and everybody is uh, joining. And you don't think Herman will ever, but he's just had a scene where someone has made it clear, whatever you think you are, I see a Jew. And then uh, I, I join in one of the verses, and you see that it may be deep, deep down in him, but it's still something that he connects with. And I think that's a, the beautiful moment that I love. Totally. There's so many. I actually, I really do want to actually see it again because even some of the things you're drawing out now, I'm not sure if I missed it. And I guess, you know, you have to go yeah, back. Every time I've read the play and every time I've seen it, and I've seen it five times and I've now performed it eight times, I learn and I notice something new. There's so much. Stoppard's writing is uh, unbelievably great. How does it feel to go from reading it, watching it, and now like being inside the story. What does what that experience uh, feel it's like? An, uh, it's a complete dream. I still wake up in the morning and I have a moment where I realize, oh, this is really happening. I'm really in this play. As an 18-year-old, I went to the opening night of Stoppard's uh, The Real Thing on Broadway in 1984. And I remember I already wanted to be an actor and I was blown away by this writing. And so this is like a bucket list item for me that wasn't even on my list because I don't think a year ago, if you'd said, yeah, you're going to be in a Broadway production of Tom Stoppard, I would have said, no, that's not going to happen. So it wasn't even really on my list. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm living a, a dream as an actor and as a Jew. And where was your family during the war? Like where, what is your story? You know, any relationship yeah. to the Holocaust? Yeah. I mean, I always say it's, it's, an, it's a weird way to put it, but things were bad enough early enough in the parts of Poland that my ancestors are from that most of my family, uh, thank God, came over before the Holocaust. We certainly lost people, uh, you know, more remote ancestors uh, uh, in the Holocaust, but most of my people came over uh, to New York um, prior uh, same with us as well. And it's interesting going to a public school as like the only Jewish girl in my grade for most of, you know, the, wow. those years. Um, when the Holocaust came up, I almost felt like, shoot, I wish I had that thing. Cause like now it's this very Jewish thing. It's, it's very twisted and deranged, but it's sort of no. such a point of, um, I don't know, like a cultural point or something that the world I knows. Understand it. It's, and so, um, you know, and, and I also, our organization works with ex-Hasidim and this community, what I've come to realize now is that they are nearly 100% survivors and descendants of survivors in the Hasidic community because they all stayed. And the mm -hmm. amount of damage that, you know, goes through the generations, the intergenerational trauma. Um, and then, of course, we see these stories um, that get amplified in, in people um, having these very negative relationships to their Jewishness. For me, what's so painful about that is that I think in so many of these cases, it was anti-Semitism that created so much um, pain in the family. It got filtered through like higher and higher level of dysfunction through the generations. And now we see more and more of that, you know, rejection or walking away. And what I think for so many people that we deal with are learning being abused or growing up with toxic people is not Jewish. That's, you know, unfortunately some people and, you know, uh, how right. they operate as opposed to, um, you know, learning to see the, the love of being Jewish. So your character actually talks about when he kind of hates being Jewish. There's an anti-Semite that like kind of 
um, punches him or throws him into the mud. Am I remembering this part of the well, story? He actually, he tells a story. He tells his brother-in-law, I can tell you the moment I decided not to be a Jew. And then he tells a story that his grandpa had told him of his grandfather throwing a coin into the hat of a man who was playing fiddle on a street corner. And the man stopped playing and grabs his hat and throws it into the street and says, where are your manners, Jew? And, uh, you know, there are a multiplicity of ways you can react to that kind of humiliation. And his grand, when it, when the young Herman at nine or 10 was told the story. He said, Grandpa, what did you do? The grandfather says, oh, I picked up my cat. And that's a moment of humiliation that uh, can either turn a person into being a proud, fierce Jew who's never going to allow treatment like that. Or you can do that thing where like, I'm just going to hide that part of my identity because I don't want to ever be on the other end of that kind of uh, anti-Semitism. And that's sort of the direction uh, Herman went. And I feel like, that still lives in so many Jewish people. Sure. I think what bothers me and what we're seeing with our Hollywood Bureau is that so many other marginalized groups have finally gotten to a point where they're being like proud of who they are and they're celebrating who they are and they're not hiding who they are. And as Jews, I think we still sort of walk around, even Orthodox Jews. My husband was at um, a conference for his law firm and there was an Asian professor talking about how people used to cover at work. They'd straighten their hair. They use their English name as opposed to their ethnic one. And my husband, he's sitting there without a yarmulke on in the middle of the conference. And he's like, huh, like even me, me too. And I think um, that's something I've just become so much more conscious of. Like, when will we start to lean in? When will we start to, like, even if our relationship has been um, troubled or problematic uh, with our our Judaism, our Jewish identity, when will we begin to look for that love, look for that pride? Because other than Israel as one hope, one of my takeaways from this play is that we have to sort of work on that self-love, whatever that looks like for every, you know, any Jew um, as a way to combat all this hatred, this endless hatred towards our people. No, I absolutely agree. And I encourage people, if you are the kind of Jew who doesn't feel comfortable being Jewish, to learn more and to explore more and to dig into the beauty of Judaism, because there's much there to savor and to be proud of. I love it. Um, let's just talk Tachlis now. Give us the the uh, deets of the, the play. I saw that it got extended until the summer. Is that the current? Yes, it, it will run through July 2nd. And I encourage uh, everybody to come see it and to bring your kids or older kids, 13, 14, 15. We also know that uh, maybe not the, the audience of your audience, but a greater audience uh, is becoming more and more ignorant of the Holocaust and history and what happened. And so uh, I don't think it feels like a history lesson, but there's a tremendous amount of education uh, to be found in the play as well. But it's much, much more than that. And it is an emotional, beautiful piece. A hundred percent. And it's at the Long Acre Theater. Long Acre Theater uh, running until July. Second. Second. And um, I want to also just say, yes, our audience knows about the Holocaust, but there's so many details of the things that led up to the Holocaust that I'm only learning about recently. And I think we really need to have our eyes open right now about what were those yeah. stages before, because how do we say never again if we don't know the stages that lead up to, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you're so that- right. I, I have learned for sure also from reading, seeing and being in this book. Um, Josh, thank you so much. 
for, first of all, your involvement in this show has just elevated to another level of stardom. And so I think it will just fill up more seats, maybe even get extended. I don't know. You're nice really, to say. <laughs> but um, everyone watching, please go out and get your tickets. Um, it is well worth the money. Um, it will move you. Um, it will start conversations probably in your head, hopefully with other people. Thank you for being a courageous, outspoken um you know, hero for our people. Um, and you should have continued success um, and a strong voice uh, until 120. Thank you, Allison. You too. Okay. All the best. And thanks so much for watching. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.